Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Before the program started, Adam asked me if uh, it's okay to bang the gavel on the Lucite, and the answer is yes, it is. Before he became a two-term mayor of Denver, Colorado, and a two-time governor of the state of Colorado, John Hickenlooper lived the American dream. No, he was not the scion of a wealthy, aristocratic family, although his paternal grandfather was a general in the Union Army, and his grandfather was a federal judge. And he was not the son of a wealthy real estate developer or an international oil magnate. But rather, he worked as a geologist in Colorado for Buckhorn Petroleum in the 1980s. He was laid off when the company was sold in 1986. But not to be dissuaded from a career in business, John Hickenlooper, along with five business partners, raised startup funds and founded WinCoop, one of the first brew pubs in the United States. And the operation of WinCoop, which opened in one of Denver's most derelict neighborhoods, is an urban legend success story. After struggling in its first year of business, John Hickenlooper brokered a cooperative agreement with nearby restaurants and businesses that contributed to the redevelopment of the area, and it became one of Denver's leading entertainment districts. Governor Hickenlooper was born in Narberth, Pennsylvania. He was raised by his mother from a young age after his father passed away. He's a graduate of the Haverford School, and he went on to attend Wesleyan University, where he earned a B.A. in English. That was in 1974, and then a master's degree in geology. That was 1980. As a successful business owner, Hickenlooper became familiar with civic proceedings. He joined local boards, and he gained a reputation as a player and an influencer in a city that he felt was often unresponsive to the needs of all the citizens of Denver. After he was elected as the mayor of Denver in 2003, he told the New York Times, and I quote, I'm not the typical little guy who makes it big in the process of building a business. I've been involved with the community and I have never shied away from speaking up when politicians didn't do so. Time magazine named him one of America's five best big city mayors. Appearing today with Governor Hickenlooper and moderating our program is Scott Schaefer. Scott is the senior editor for local station KQED's California Politics and Government Desk. He is also the senior correspondent for KQED Newsroom. That's a news and public affairs program. For several years, Scott hosted the very popular California Report. So it's time to begin our program. Please give a warm welcome to presidential candidate, Governor John Hickenlooper, and today's moderator, Scott Schaefer. Good afternoon and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club. The club is online at commonwealthclub.org, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. I'm Scott Schaefer, Senior Editor for KQED's Politics and Government Desk, and now it's my pleasure to introduce our distinguished guest, John Hickenlooper. As Joe mentioned, John is former mayor of Denver, former governor of Colorado, and in March... John entered the presidential race saying he was the person to take on President Trump in 2020. Governor Hickenlooper, welcome to San Francisco. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I guess the first question, you know, why do you want to be president? 
<clears throat> that's a good question. Um, you know, I look at this country as being in a national crisis. It took me a while to sort through, but it's a crisis of division. And I don't think we've been this divided since the Civil War. And I look at what we've done. Well, what I've done in the private sector as a small business owner, uh, having been laid off and creating a business from scratch, what I did is eight years as mayor and eight years as governor to bring people together to create achievement and, and to really get things done. And I, you know, we can go on at some length about uh, President Trump and what he's done to democracy, the ways he's, you know, really frayed the the fabric of, you know, tr- rule by law, truth and dignity. I mean, go down the list. But I think he's a symptom. I think the the real crisis is the division that's keeping us from addressing issues like like healthcare and like climate change, uh, like automation and artificial intelligence, what that'll do to the workplace. And I think I look at everyone else, they're pretty much all from Washington. They've all, you know, never, they've never been entrepreneurs. They've never started a business, made a payroll. They've never been a mayor. And then from being a mayor, never been a governor. They haven't seen how all the different levels of government work. So there are 19 other people saying why they're the best person to do it. And, and you sort of described just a moment ago some of your unique experiences. But what, is it, what about the qualities? What qualities would you bring to the White House, uh, not just experience, but as personal attributes that you think would help bring the country together if division is the big crisis that you see? Sure. Well, I have this propensity for telling the truth. Uh, <clears throat> you know what they say I, in Washington, that a gaffe is when you accidentally tell the truth. Right? Yeah, so. um, you know, my, as was mentioned in my introduction, my, my father died when I just turned eight. And my mother was, had been widowed twice before she was 40. Hmm. And she raised four kids by herself. And she would frequently tell us that you can't control what life throws at you, but you can control whether, how you respond, whether it makes you stronger, weaker, better, or worse. But her overriding belief was that we took responsibility for ourselves, but that responsibility, the joy came from building, you know, following what you, what you loved and building relationships with people in, in, in common effort. And I think, you know, the qualities that, that, that engenders, right. That, that hard work and determination count for a lot that, uh, being kind, and, uh, you know, random acts of kindness have significant effect on people sometimes when you least, effect, uh, least expect it. Uh, uh, you know, that, those qualities are what we seem to be in short supply of. You know, I remember uh, Barack Obama joking that uh, people were saying, why don't you have a bourbon with Mitch McConnell? And he said at the Correspondence Center, why don't you have a drink with Mitch McConnell? <laughs> you know, so is there really... A receptivity, if you were to become president, I mean, how, what would make you different in terms of being able to really break down some of those walls and, and the extreme partisanship that's there now? Well, certainly Mitch McConnell is a challenge. Anybody that will welcome a new president by saying we will do anything we can to make sure you're a failure, which I think verges on treason. I mean, seriously, that to say that you are going to do whatever you can to make them a failure means that you are committing yourself to the detriment of the overall good of the country. It's not treason, but it's, it is alarming to hear someone say that. And, and sometimes you can't get along with people, right? I pride myself on all the, the people that have been at each other's throats that we've been able to get in the same room and, and find common ground. 
but I'm not sure that it's possible with everyone. When we had the shootings in Aurora in 2012, you know, the first thing we did, little recognized, but we put $30 million towards mental health. That was our first effort. But the second thing was universal background checks for, for gun safety. And we could not reason with the NRA, the National Rifle Association. And in the end, they would not compromise in any way. And even with a split legislature, we, we muscled it through. And I think that that challenge, uh, I mean, that's sometimes what you have to do. But we've gotten the environmental community to sit down with the oil and gas industry and create regulations to eliminate methane emissions, 25 to 40 times worse than, than CO2. Uh, we've been able to get to almost universal health care coverage. Uh, we have one of the most innovative health care exchanges in the country. These are all by getting people who were at odds with each other to lay down their weapons and, and sit down and, 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 and compromise and collaborate. Gun, gun control, of course, is one of the signature achievements uh, of your being governor. And I'm just wondering, you have, as the, they, we say now, evolved on that issue. I mean, after, I think it was after the Aurora shooting, you said, well, even if there had been gun control, he would have gotten the gun somewhere else. You were kind of suggesting that maybe gun control wasn't the solution. And yet, You've come around on that. So, like, what changed your mind? Well, what I said was that we need time to grieve. And so as I was saying, you know, maybe gun control isn't the whole solution, I wanted to create space. I mean, there were, I mean, there were 70 people shot in that movie theater. 12 of them died. And the level, I mean, we went, that, that first day, I, I went to the theater in the mobile command center. We saw the video that came out with the first police officers taking video of what the crime scene looked like. Most chilling footage I'll ever see. But we also went then to, into the hospitals and visited, you know, everyone who could receive visitors we spent time with, and they needed space. So, but at the same time, I also realized that mental health was going to be a clear issue based on what had transpired there and, and a number of the other shootings. I, I think it's foolish to say, I mean, we have a, a national epidemic of, of mental health, right? I, I mean, depression uh, is at a level that we've never seen before. Suicides are raising a, rising at a faster rate than, than we've ever seen before. Uh, I mean, it's part of the issue. But universal background checks, you know, like most states, we were getting to 50% of the gun purchases. And I made the mistake of coming home one day and, and complaining to my 12, or at that time, he was 10-year-old son. He's now 16. Uh, he was in fifth grade. And I made the mistake of complaining. He goes, Dad, what do you do at work all day that's so hard? Make decisions? And I said, well, <laughs> I, I said, Teddy, it's not so easy. He goes, no, no, Dad. Dad, get the facts, make a decision, check, next. I go, well, Teddy, it's not that. He goes, Dad, get the facts, make a decision, check, next. He goes, every day I've got to go into school and learn something completely new I didn't know existed the day before. If I don't get it perfect, the next day is misery because everything's the day before. I said, Teddy, you're right. Fifth grade is harder than being governor. <laughs> but we came in the next day. And I said, we, we got the national statistics, but we didn't see, we were getting to, we were doing background checks on half the gun purchases in Colorado, and we didn't, we hadn't gotten our local statistics, because the Republican legislators, on the advice of the NRA, were saying, well, crooks aren't stupid, they're not going to get a background check. I memorized these stats. So, in 2012, in a population of Colorado, five and a half million people, uh, getting to 50% of the gun purchases, our background checks revealed 38 people convicted of homicide tried to buy a gun, and we stopped them. 133 people, 133 people convicted of sexual assault, uh, 620 burglars. Ultimately, 3,000 people 
convicted of violent crimes, tried to buy a gun and we stopped them. And 240 people, when they showed up to pick up their new gun, we arrested them for an outstanding warrant for a violent crime. So this notion that crooks aren't stupid, A, now we know that's patently false. In D.C., you know, people thought, well, after Sandy Hook and all the little kids that were shot and killed, certainly Congress would get off the dime and do something. And yet they did nothing. Um, so what were you what was able to happen in Colorado? Why was Colorado different than you think D.C. will be? Well, I think that I think D.C. is better now. I mean, not better. <laughs> like, I, I want to retract that statement. <laughs> uh, I th- well, we had uh, at that moment in, in Colorado, we had a Democratic majority in both the House and the Senate. So when we could not get a compromise from the National Rifle Association or the Republicans, we muscled it through. And it led to two of our state senators being recalled. And, and, and Successfully. Successfully. They got recalled and we, we lost the majority. But sometimes you've got to do that. I think the statistics that we got locally are so powerful that when I've gone to other states and asked, and, and pretty much every state has the same liability. When they're not, if they don't have universal background checks, they are allowing dangerous people to purchase guns. And when it's statistics for your state, your municipality, you responded, respond to it in a different way. And I think we can go to five or six states, roll, you know, transform that, that battle into universal background checks, and then finally compel Congress to do it. I don't think it will be easy, but I think it's eminently doable. Do you think it's extreme to call the NRA a kind of terrorist group? I, I look at the NRA as a, you know, ruthless negotiator to, you know, use whatever tools they can to sell more guns. A trade association. You know, the, I'm not sure I'd call them. I mean, I understand the reasons behind using that kind of language. But, I mean, they're... They are contributing to violence in America, and they're, and they're making terrible tragedies much worse. Yeah. Um, you're here in the Bay Area uh, in what Silicon Valley likes to call the cradle of the innovation economy. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of calls. There are many calls for more regulation. We've seen, of course, the, the, how social media were used uh, during the 2016 election. There's some evidence that it's already uh, Russians and others uh, outside groups are trying to influence uh, 2020. Um, there are, of course, many privacy concerns. What would you do as president? What level of either regulation or, as some, Senator Warren is calling for breaking up companies like Amazon? Like, where are you on that question? Well, I'm on the, you know, I'm from the side of the entrepreneur. And I look back, you know, I got laid off in 1986. It took me two years to raise the money to start this, the first brew pub in the Rocky Mountains. Uh, I saw a place in Berkeley called Triple Rock. It's where I actually saw a brew pub. My brother, Sidney, took me, took me there on a Wednesday night, and there was a line out the door. And, but it took two years. I couldn't get my own mother to invest. And, you know, our rent in Denver was $1 per square foot per year. So eight and a half cents per month was, was what our rent was. And, you know, we worked 70 hours a week. We, my partners and I, we did everything we could. We built a community. We got the other restaurants to work together. And, and we made a success out of it. We built other brew pubs across the Midwest. I'm not sure that other John Hickenloopers out there today who'd been laid off and had no, their profession was gone, denied to them, 
whether they would have the same opportunity to create an entrepreneurial success. And I say that because we've lost a lot of the competitive opportunities that entrepreneurs need to succeed. So one of those, I would argue, is is too many uh, dominant large corporations in too many industries. So many industries now are dominated by two or three or four companies that that monopolize the whole industry. They make it they make it hard for entrepreneurs to look at you know the possibility of starting a business and succeeding. Also, there's a there's more and more red tape and bureaucracy. And I believe in regulation. I think appropriate regulation is essential to make you know free enterprise work. But I mean, we went through when I was when I became governor. We started going through in 2011. We went through 24,500 rules and regulations in Colorado, and I had some pretty liberal, progressive people going through each one, getting rid of the red tape. We simplified or eliminated over 11,000 rules and regulations. That kind of red tape where it takes pages and pages and rules and applications just to start a small business is not in the best interest of our country. But when we're talking about companies like Facebook and Google and you know Amazon, I mean, it seems like the, the, some say that the, the, the game is kind of rigged on their behalf, especially Amazon, which has, uh, so, as you know, Elizabeth Warren was describing, they have both a, a, a team on the playing field and they're the referees in terms of how <laughs> you know people can advertise on their website. I mean, is do they have an unfair advantage? Uh, and and what kind of regulation, if any, would you support around? privacy, say, with, uh, you know, sharing of our own personal data. So those are two big Very different, different. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting to look at, t- at tech as kind of there's one group that is re- basing in advertising, right? And then there's another group that's actually, especially with the cloud-based companies, uh, you know, like, like Salesforce or Workday, that are actually helping solve the world's problems by using technology to enhance our capabilities, our capacity, our capacity, uh, these the questions you're asking are really whether the size and scope of information that someone like Amazon is is has available make it all but impossible for competitors to succeed. And the thing you didn't mention, which I think, but I think is also a concern, is when people sell on Amazon, they Amazon knows exactly who's the best seller. Exactly, and so they're able to have that information that should be confidential. And use it to their benefit. They go and buy a, these. That's companies. what I mean about being the referee. You know, the, right? You know. Well, that's uh, yeah. Mis, mis, misinterpreted what your intention. So, was. what would you do about that? Is, does is there a role for what is the role for government? Well, we have again, we have uh, a number of laws in place that that have been changed. Right, the laws weren't changed, but the interpretation was back in 1981. A, a lot of our uh, our monopolistic laws they they changed the interpretation so that. Monopolies were only defined by whether uh, the consumer was hurt. So as long as a giant corporation continued to provide slightly better value, the other consequences of that monopolistic behavior were disregarded, which is not the way those laws were written. So the first thing I would do is go back and make sure that there's clarity of interpretation. Obviously, you'd have to uh, adjust and, and, and add to the actual laws themselves to make sure that they had to be interpreted uh, by their original intention. And that is to make sure that there's a sufficient competition, that there are free markets that can operate successfully, uh, which is not the case in some of these cases, and where necessary, where you would break up large companies. And, uh, you know, I'm not someone that goes out and says, well, we're going to have to break up Amazon, we're going to have to break up uh, Facebook. Could it come to that? But it could come to that. I, I absolutely believe that 
I mean, capitalism, you step back and look at all the challenges we face in capitalism. There are a few statistics that, that, that are powerful. 75 to 80% of the families in America today are having a very hard time balancing their household budgets at the end of every month. 75 to 80% of the families today. That's staggering that that is the country that we accept. And somehow we've been letting that get worse and worse over all these years. From 1946, when the greatest generation after the World War, they did the you know, they, GI Bill. They, oh, they did the GI Bill, the U.S. Interstate Commission, uh, all the investments into Germany and, and Japan, the Marshall Plan. We did all those things. We borrowed money. And yet from 1946 to 1980, right, the inflation-adjusted income of every person in America doubled. Rough justice doubled. Since 1980, 50% of Americans, inflation-adjusted, are making less than they were in 1980. I mean, that's, that was a dramatic change when suddenly uh, the trickle-down was, you know, all these tax cuts and, and, and benefits to businesses. Really. Sure. And, and, you know, income inequality is a huge issue, and Democrats who are running for president and others are, are suggesting things like we should, you know, uh, wipe out student loans, just like pay those off. Others are saying we should, you know, raise taxes on the wealthy. Uh, all, some are talking about a guaranteed income, even, uh, because of all the jobs that are being uh, eliminated through technology and artificial intelligence and all that. So again, like, what, is, what do you see, those statistics you just described, what's, how do you address them if you were president? Well, I think we have to have, when I grew up, our American form of capitalism created both security and opportunity, not just for the middle class, but for the, for the working class. And that is no longer the case. The, the chances of someone from the lowest quartile of American economics, economic society achieving the upper quartile is half of what it is for a, a person in France or Germany. That never used to be the case. We were always a, the, the champion of equal opportunity and, and we've reversed that. And I think we be, need to look at, at really reframing a lot of the issues around how our capitalism works. So one example, and, and this isn't something people talk about, but there are 81,000 trade associations in America. And these are honest people. They're lobbyists. They're, they're organizations for the, you know, the, the, the sand and gravel providers of America, the Sheetrock Association of America, the, the, the Restaurant Association of California. They're all trying to help their membership get a little advantage, a little tax break, a little benefit. And there's no one sticking up for the consumer, for the, for the American people. And we should recognize that that has been tilting the playing field for a long time. And there are so many loopholes and tax benefits littered through our, 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 our economic. But those are mostly corporate you're talking about. Corporate and small business. Yes. Yeah, they're, but, they're, but they're layered all the way through. I mean, I would start with, I mean, we're going to have to increase the minimum wage. That's not, that's not a new idea to anybody. We need to make How sure. high? Well, I think $15. I don't have a problem with that. I think we have to do it in, in stages. Yeah. And we'd have to recognize that in certain parts of the country, it's going to take longer to get to 15 bucks. If you're uh, running a, a, a coffee shop in, in uh, Craig, Colorado, in the far northwestern corner of the state, $15, is, it, would, it would drastically diminish your ability to... to to have people come in and buy your products. What about raising individual income taxes on the wealthy? You know, obviously, there got to be new revenues that have to come from somewhere. And we've got to look at how, does, how do we get there? You know, Warren Buffett's whole issue around 
you know, why is it that, uh, that, that, you know, capital gains is, you know, taxed so differently than ordinary income. So when people actually work and sweat at a job, they pay more tax than someone who really is just making investments in various ways. We should revisit some of this stuff. Uh, you know, I think when Kennedy was president, the upper end for the highest uh, income earners was about 70 percent tax rate, which is obviously now it's gone way down to into the 30s somewhere. Uh, but again, I mean, is that something that and the economy was doing quite well at that time, you know, in the in the mid 60s with a higher rate. Uh, but since Reagan, you know, it's been coming down. I mean, I, so it, is that part of the reason for the income inequality? And or is that a way of addressing income inequality? It's you ab- seem reluctant to. to no, clear. it's absolutely part of the, of the problem. The, uh, uh, that's why the argument I made that from 1946 to 1980, the income of every, on average, rough justice, the income of Americans doubled in that period. Since then, 50% of the people are making less money. The only people who are really going up are, are the very, very rich. From 1946 to 1980, the very, very rich didn't quite double. They only went up 75 or 80%. Still, they started with a very high base, so right. we don't have to lose sleep. The, the, the challenge is we have to figure out how do we, what are the vehicles by which we why we get those extra revenues, those additional taxes. Because back at the end of World War II, we borrowed everything. Uh, we had more debt per capita, more debt as a relation to GDP than we've ever imagined. And we, no, one, no one worried about it because we were fighting for our freedom, for the, for the freedom of this country. And people believed in America. They believed in the promise of America. So when we came out and we said, all right, to make sure we don't have another world war, we're going to have the Marshall Plan. And we're going to invest billions and billions of dollars making sure that these these defeated countries don't give way to totalitarian government again. Huge expense. And as you said, GI Bill, the expanding state education, you know, uh, uh, state universities and colleges dramatically changed the, the framework of how people were, were skilled for the jobs that were coming. Expanding the, the Interstate Commission. And through this all, we have this incredibly strong economy. There's no question that people paying more revenues into a common good that they believe in is a successful, a more successful way to run an economy. Our problem right now is so many people, and there's been billions of dollars to make us this way, but people don't believe in government. They don't believe in, in I mean, this is one of the reasons why I ran for mayor in 2003. I, I never ran for student council or a class president, but I didn't hang out with the people that did, uh, at least not during the elections. Uh, I think that that notion that we have to find a way that we can get people to believe in government, it should be essential to everyone's, you know, how you operate your, your daily lives. You should be talking to your friends and your neighbors, your coworkers. Let's talk about climate change a little sure. bit. Uh, one of your fellow governors, Jay Inslee, who is running for president, uh, is making that his real focus. Like, that's all he's talking about is climate change. As a governor, a Western governor, you've had to deal with floods and wildfires, uh, as we have. Uh, you know, the fire season here is almost year-round now. Um, you come from a—you were an oil geologist, I think, before sure. you got into— Exploration geologist, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you've been criticized by some back there for being a little too pro-industry, you know, supporting fracking. That's something Governor Jerry Brown's been criticized for as well when he was there. But, you know— from based on the experience you have as uh, both governor and your you know as a geologist, like what do you see is the government response to the fossil fuel industry that is going to put us where we need to be with the track we need to be on? Sure. And so, 
Uh, I am. I have a master's in earth and environmental science, a master's in geology. I think I'm the, according to one of my young interns, I'm the only governor in history to have a, a, a professional geological, professional geology background. I also, just for the record, I'm also the first brewer since Sam Adams in 1792 <laughs> to, get, to get elected governor. Um, I think the, the real issue, what we should be talking about is how, how what is the, the, the the way that we can most rapidly transition to a carbon-free economy, to clean, clean energy. And I would hold Colorado's success up against anyone's. We have two coal plants. We're in the process of closing right now. And we will replace them for the first time in the history of this country with solar, wind, and batteries. No natural gas. And for the first time in this country, the average monthly electric bill to those consumers is going to go down. Uh, we were able to get, as I mentioned, the oil and gas industry to work with the environmental community. They hate each other. They don't trust each other. They've stabbed each other in the back. We kept them in the same room for, for 14 months and got methane regulations, and they're now being rolled out as a national plan in Canada. They, they've got to be rolled out globally if we're really going to be serious about climate change. It can't just be what we've done here. We took our Volkswagen settlement money for the diesel fraud and used it to begin building a, a, a network on our interstates of rapid recharging stations for electric vehicles. And then we got all the Western states, five Republicans, five Democrats, are all doing that now. Wyoming and Idaho and, and Arizona, we're all building this, this framework. I mean, we've got to go and, and, and find every way we can transition to a carbon-free economy. ASA, we're, we're within a decade or 12 years of going over going past the point of no return for damage to the planet. And some, like Tom Friedman, for example, uh, and Al Gore, I guess, as well, are saying that the only real way to do that is to tax carbon, to really make the polluters uh, pay the real cost of emitting you know, CO2. Do you support a carbon tax or some, something like that? Certainly we need to provide greater incentives, and there are several different systems by which you can look at that. Um, we have a, a scientist in, in Colorado, a guy named Amy Lovins, uh, the Rocky Mountain Institute. Uh, and he's, a, he's not a big supporter of the carbon tax uh, and thinks that there are other ways that we can more rapidly and more effectively uh, diminish our consumption of hydrocarbons for, like what? to support energy. Well, looking at certain ways that we uh, facilitate building codes and, and re, uh, uh, Reinsulating and refurbishing, uh, uh, weatherizing, I think is the word that's most commonly used for all the existing building stock that's, that's, that's out there. Uh, figuring out how are we going to get mobility in, in ways outside of just the, the traditional uses we've been doing. But you have to pay for that stuff, especially the weatherization, right? I and mean, where, where's the money for that? Well, it pays for itself. I mean, that's the, the thing. Yeah, but that, you got to pay for it before it pays for itself. Right. Well, exactly. There's a repayment. So you need to figure out the structure of the repayment. The, the tricky thing, and I'm not against a, a carbon tax per se, the tricky thing is it's been so demonized that it becomes this huge partisan battle and a divisive issue. Where we've been successful in Colorado, I mean, the, the only way you're going to make real progress is to, is to find compromise and collaboration. And the only way I know to do that, you know, in the restaurant business, we learned the hard way that you, uh, when someone's really upset, you, A, you don't let them leave because they'll ruin your reputation without you ever knowing about it. So, but you sit and you, re you repeat back to them in their own words what they're saying that makes them so upset. And they feel validated when they're heard. When you say someone else's words, their angry words, when you say them, you, you hear them more clearly in a different way than if you're just listening, when you repeat their words. And by really hearing each other, you begin to get to a point of trust. And once you have some basic foundation of trust, 
you begin to get to to collaboration. I tell our, our staff that we we are able to collaborate at the speed of trust because that's the essential ingredient. And what that means is we've got to look first. Our primary goals are the easiest places that we can bring people together. And once we begin to build up that muscle of trust and collaboration, then you can take on the bigger issues like, like a carbon tax. I'm not sure it's the first thing you want to take, take on because then you've got the pendulum. It's a, it becomes a pitched battle. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. Some of your uh, other, some of the other Democrats who are running have signed on to this uh, Green New Deal uh, that uh, sure. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is supporting and pushing. Uh, Donald Trump's had a field day criticizing that, saying we're not going to be able to fly anywhere anymore, which is, of course, not true. But, you know, what's, <laughs> what's your position on that? Do you, do you support it, as, even as an aspirational goal? I support some form of a Green New Deal, with, without question. And I have as great a sense of urgency about cl- climate change as, as anyone I know. I, I do think we have to have a single-minded focus on climate change. And that the, the problem with the Green New Deal as it was presented is it had other things in it, such as the federal job guarantee. That would have a hard time getting through Congress. It would have a hard time getting implemented, probably go to court. We need to be focused on getting something through Congress that can actually get passed in Congress and put it, start working on it immediately. We don't have two or three years to kind of have a battle and prove someone's a winner, someone's a loser. You know, in general, I think a lot of these, the party, at least the base, the activist base of the party seems to be, uh, they're not looking for trust. They're not looking for someone who can reach across the aisle. They're not looking for a pragmatist like uh, what you're selling. Uh, And so I I wonder... um, is that a mistake, do you think, uh, to, to, say, to call for things that are a little more out there on the edge, like Medicare for All or the Green New Deal uh, or get rid of student debt altogether? I mean, are those – is that a mistake? No, I think that, that having those issues with great clarity is crucially important. And, you know, I look at uh, the, the issues around college debt. If, if you don't think that's a big drag on our economy, you're crazy, right? 40 million people with debt now totals $1.4 trillion. And, and some, you know, this notion that, that millennials really don't want to own a car, that they like transit, that they don't want to buy a house and, and have a family, that's nonsense, right? That's crazy. Of course they want to own a car. Of course they want to be able to get married and have a family. They're, they are buried in debt. And... We need to figure out some way to get that debt refinanced down to a, a, a dramatically lower rate. It shouldn't be that hard, given the way uh, our, our nation runs financially. That's not an impossible thing to do. I'm not sure we can forgive all that debt, but we can let people work it off. I had a young woman come up to me uh, a week ago who had just finished paying off. I think she was at $47,000 she'd paid off over six years, seven years. And she, she, someone asked a question, and I gave an answer, and she came up and said, you better not forgive everyone's debt. Because who's going to pay me back for the money that I had to work two jobs and work 65 hours a week to pay off that debt? And, you know, there's an issue of fairness. But it's a drag on the economy. So I look at, just on, the, on college, 
Why is college inflation so high? Let's sit down and address that. For the last couple of years, we've been able to hold uh, University of Colorado. If you go to the University of Colorado, you're guaranteed that the tuition won't rise over four years. For the last two years, it hasn't risen for anybody, even for the new, the new freshmen. But we've got to go beyond that. It's been rising at four times, five times the cost of inflation. That's outrageous. It's egregious. Uh, the other thing we should look at is the 70% of the kids in this country that are never going to get a four-year degree and haven't for the last 40 years. And we told everyone they've got to go to college. Essentially, we've, we've pulled back a lot of the support and, and uh, vocational training that we used to provide for everyone. And so 70% of the kids, you know, we're not doing anything for them. And I'd, one thing I think we could do within a year, I don't think we could get to free college within a year, but we could get to free skills and expand our tech schools and, and especially our community colleges. Every business I know is happy to put money into their community college if they can get workers with the skills they need. Yeah. Right now, we've got 7.2 million jobs unfilled, only 6.3 million people looking. It's because we don't have the skills. Let's, let's start looking at giving, uh, making sure that every kid who wants to, to take the time can learn to have the skills to create their own, their own profession, their own vision of the American dream. One of the things that uh, one of the ways in which Colorado has evolved, it was a pretty red state and it was a purple state. And I guess it's still purple, but it's pretty blue. Uh, and one of the things your voters there did was to, uh, of course, legalize pot. Uh, that did not change the complexion or the color of our state, just for the record. Didn't, it made it more green, probably. It made it a little more green. But, you know, it's a fraction. Our, you know, our uh, GDP for the state is about 320 or $330 billion dollars. Uh, legal marijuana, all marijuana, is about a billion and a half. So it's a yeah. fraction. It's it's less than a half a percent. But it's a growth industry. I don't think so. I, no? I, no, no, we have. We can show you. Uh, we do a study, uh, a public health survey for the entire state, 24,000 people every two years. And we can demonstrate without question that there's been no spike in teenage consumption, which was one of the reasons I opposed it and was against the legalization of marijuana. Uh, we don't see any dramatic increase in driving while high, much more concerned about driving while distracted with your cell phones and things. That's the real issue we're, we're dealing with. You know, the old system of, of marijuana and, and drugs, the war on drugs, sent millions of kids to prison, that, that, that almost all from low-income backgrounds. We made incredibly difficult lives, impossibly more difficult by making them felons. It, what good did it do? It was a, a failure. Our system is not perfect, but we have made, we have not seen a spike in teenage consumption. We have not seen, you know, more driving while high, and we're not sending millions of kids to prison. Was it a mistake to oppose legalization? No, because A, if you're a governor, you don't want to be in conflict with federal law. That's just the reality. That's, this has not been a fun thing to do. But when your voters pass something, 55-45, I mean, I do believe states are the laboratories of democracy. And that my job was to say, all right, I wasn't in favor of this. I, I wasn't sure the risk was worth the reward. But now I'm going to do everything I can to make this work. And I got the smartest people together. Uh, we created a regulatory framework. And, you know, we made some mistakes. It took us a year to realize that edibles were going to become huge, a huge uh, place of, of impact on this in, in the in the in the marketplace, and and they were making them look like toys or, or, or candy for kids. So we had to outlaw that, but we figured it out, and we're now close. We think that this year might be the first year that there is no economic black market in Colorado. Now people might still be growing it illegally and shipping it out of state, but we think we've gotten our our, our system pretty much in balance. And let me guarantee you that the drug dealers 
don't care who they sell to. And if we can really get rid of that black market, we'll have a much higher probability of keeping pot out of the hands of teenagers. Do you have a favorite edible? You know, I love those little... No, no I don't have a favorite <laughs> edible. Um, You're a troublemaker. Would you uh, support, if not legalization nationwide, uh, decriminalization? Well, here's what I think the federal... And I've spent a lot of time, you can imagine, thinking about this. I believe that the federal government first should declassify marijuana as a Schedule One narcotic. What that, what that means is that we can begin doing medical testing on it, which right now we cannot legally do. It's all happening in Israel. We have no vertical, vertically integrated studies. That's outrageous. Uh, w- there is no question, and I have, we all, probably everyone in this room knows someone who has a, uh, an autistic child or someone who's had seizures, uh, and, and, and cannabin oil or, or marijuana is the one thing that worked. It it's, clearly has medical benefits. Why don't we test it? Why isn't the FDA doing tests right now? Second thing we should do is make sure that the Department of Agriculture has a firm, uh, just like any kind of government uh, regulation, make sure that the, the pesticides or whatever they're using is, is safe and legal. We've had to do that by ourselves in Colorado. Uh, that should be a federal thing. And we should decriminalize it on a federal basis so that states should be allowed to decide. No one should come and tell Maine or Alabama that they've got to legalize marijuana if, they're, if 90% of their population doesn't want it. But in those states where the voters or their general assembly decide that it should be legalized, the federal government shouldn't get in the way. We should make sure that you can bank. I mean, right now, you know, in Colorado, you're not allowed to, a bank can't legally risk their charter, their federal charter, if they're banking a a medical marijuana company. So now everything's in cash. If you want to do guarantee corruption, right, and, and gang activity, how would we do that? Let's, let's see. Oh, let's make them do it all in cash. That's a good idea. <laughs> all right. Let's ask some audience questions here. Uh, bup, 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 bup. Would you support taking the cap off earnings to be taxed for Medicare and Social Security? Right now, I think it's about uh, everything below 120, 120,000 or something. Maybe a little above that. I think a, little, so. a little higher than 130. Something. Yeah. Um, absolutely. I'd look at that. I think that's something where uh, we've always equated the, the money that's collected for uh, uh, Medicare and for Social Security as kind of a savings fund. You, you put money in and you, you utilize it later. But we have gotten so out of whack in terms of a graduated tax system that the, the wealthier people in this country, just in the way the structure works, uh, I don't think are... are, are uh, putting enough into the system that we can provide opportunity and infrastructure to allow our economy to grow like it should. And, I, and I'm, I'm a big believer in growth. I don't think anything stays the same. I think our economy should be back at 3 or 4% growth, and that's one way to do it. So most wealthy people, and I'm, you know, when I am talking to a, a titan of industry or someone who makes a, a large amount of money, I ask him. So that's 6.2% that goes to Social Security, which you're never going to, you know, the Social Security for very wealthy people, that's not a part of their lives. Would that be a real affront if, if that you continued paying that for, to a much higher level? No one, not one person yet has said that's a problem. They said, huh, never thought of that. Yeah, that's something I'd look at. So I think we need to take a bunch of these things that could bring new revenue into the system because we obviously need to have infrastructure and infrastructure bank. We need to address universal coverage in healthcare, and, and we got to control costs as well. But each of these things takes some money. Given the deficit, I don't think any candidate for president should be proposing, you know, majestic 
gigantic programs uh, without having some idea of where the revenue is going to come from. Like Medicare for All. Well, Medicare for All, it, there's a way to do that ultimately. I, I don't th- – I'm going to get myself in trouble. Go for it. But, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Here's the bottom line. Uh, Medicare for all, you know, overnight is, is something that immediately happens. There are close to somewhere around 160 million people in America that get their health insurance, generally through their workplace, but through a private insurer. Many of them hate it. They feel they're getting ripped off. They want it. They'd much rather go to something like Medicare for all. But more than half are comfortable and satisfied with that private insurance. And in this country, government doesn't take things away from people that they want to hold on to generally. We try, there, there's eminent domain, eminent domain where that happens sometimes with private property. We try to avoid it. I don't see any way we could get to Medicare for all without a you know, revolution. And that, it would be a revolutionary act. I do think that we have to have a public option, and that could be Medicare, maybe Medicare Advantage, some combination of best practices for the two. Could be an expansion of, 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 of Medicaid as well as Medicare for all or Medicare. So we get to a public option. If Medicare as a public option becomes so popular and attracts more people into it and it grows and becomes more efficient and more people go into it and it ultimately pulls the, the customers away from the allegedly inefficient private insurance, then we have succeeded in a single-payer system, but it's been through evolution, uh, not revolution. Yep. And, and I think that's a more viable way in this country to get to that yeah. change. And the Democrats had 60 votes in the Senate, and I think they fell one short of doing that as part of the Affordable Care Act. It was very, very close as a way of, yeah. of, of, of uh, essentially doing that same, same approach. I, I think the bigger issue is the, the health care inflation is as bad as higher ed. We've been, for 35, 40 years, we've been seeing double, many years, more than double, the level of medical inflation compared to normal inflation. And we've got to look at things like transparency. When you go to the hospital, why can't they? You know, Walmart can tell you the cost for every one of 140,000 widgets they sell. Uh, and and our, health, our, our hospital says it's too complicated, too many variables. No, no, we need to have transparency. If you're going to take your kid to get a tonsillectomy, what's my copay going to be at these different places? Uh, why aren't... Why do we pay in this country, if you need insulin, you pay 30 times more than what someone pays in Canada? And I guarantee you the medical research that made that insulin, the, the, med, the miracle drug that it is, that the majority of that research took place in the United States, and yet we're paying the premium. We need to regulate uh, the, the, the pharmaceutical industry so that there's competition and yep. that we can buy in bulk. Go down the list of – I mean, the real question about healthcare. care, and I'll shut up and let you ask another no, question. It's a big question. Uh, the real question is, our system is fee-for-service. So as, as we've evolved into letting healthcare become a business, which, you know, when I was a kid, your hospitals, everything was nonprofit. Doctors got paid a salary, but it wasn't the industry it is now. Industries and business go where the money is. And right now, if a doctor keeps someone healthy, which I think most doctors are doing that, they're committed, but there's no pay. You, you, you keep someone, you get someone to change their lifestyle and exercise more, change their diet, and they don't uh, get, uh, you know, uh, prone to heart attacks, there's no benefit. Well, that was part of the Affordable Care Act, though, to, like, have these pools of money, right? For Medicare, I think it was, and Medicaid, people on the on the. Well, those are for the chronic, the, the chronic high-cost pools, and that's also important. But I think that we should have financial incentives for people to change their lifestyle so that they, it becomes preventative. I think we should be pushing uh, outdoor recreation. 
everywhere. I think we should go to elementary schools and go back to the days when you have to uh, have an exercise class, a recess, and everybody has to do sit-ups. I mean, it sounds stupid, but we, it, it makes people happier. They learn better. They live longer, and society saves money. It's, there's not a lot to hate about outdoor recreation. We should be you know, mobilizing I mean, look at the, 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 the businesses, the industries that are expanding, right? A lot of it is sports, entertainment. Outdoor recreation should be expanding it faster than those because it's 10 times healthier. And plus a lot of those, the, the companies that make little widgets for your backpack or your sleeping bag, those little innovations, the folks that have those little companies don't like to be in big cities. And most governors spend their lives trying to get more businesses in rural parts of their state. That's outdoor recreation. You know, something you said just reminded me of uh, Amazon again uh, and what happened with New York, where they basically threw up their hands after saying they were going to relocate or add, uh, you know, a headquarters there. And there was a lot of pushback in New York for all the tax breaks that they were giving to Amazon. Was that, do you think, a mistake? I mean, would Colorado, I know Denver tried to get uh, the Amazon headquarters. I mean, it, it, do they have a point that there are too many? You were talking about tax breaks earlier. I mean, is there too many tax, bre- tax breaks going to companies that really don't need them? Sure, and it's a race to the bottom, and it's, it's a hard race not to, to avail yourselves because you give a tax break to one of these big companies, and then all their little feeder companies come in, so it overall is a good thing for your economy. But, but the corporations are using it to their own benefit. You know, when I ran for mayor in 2003, and again, I never ran for student council, uh, I went and I went to all the suburbs, which are 80% of the metro, metro area, and I said, Denver will never be a great city without great suburbs. And people said, you're never going to get elected. I said, I'm going to share our senior water rights. We're going to conserve water to make sure the suburbs don't run out. People said, you're, cra- you're giving our most precious treasure to the people that Denverites hate. Denverites didn't hate the suburbs, and the suburbs didn't hate Denverites. The politicians did. Right? They get a benefit from having enemies. So when I ran on that premise, I got 65% of the vote running against five lifetime talented public servants. Right? Because I was about this rising tide. One of the first things we did... I went out and visited all those suburban mayors, and we got them all. There were, at that time, 34 mayors in metropolitan Denver. All 34 mayors universally, unanimously supported a tax increase to build fast tracks, 122 miles of new track, uh, a tax increase. Two-thirds of those mayors were Republican. This is in 2004. And then the next thing we did, we went to all those mayors and got them to agree not to poach businesses from each other. There had never been happened. We all were competing with, you know, to lure jobs and tax base into our municipality, which was crazy. The reason that we can't do that nationally is because certain states, I'm not going to name them, but Texas would be one you would consider. <laughs> but they are so aggressive in providing us incentives that uh, most states can't keep up. Yeah. Uh, and, and the regulations are a lot lower, too. Yeah. And so there's no way that the you know, I was chair of the National Governors Association a couple of years ago. And, and governors love working together. Republicans, Democrats. I mean, we're where the buck stops. We we have to balance our budget every year. We can't print print money. I think if if the federal government offered a, some disincentives to states that, that provide these lucrative uh, uh, and it would be politically divisive. But I think everybody would be somewhat relieved. Yeah. All right. Let's go to some more audience questions here. Um, let's see. With so many Democratic candidates, what do you do to uh, what do you do to get noticed? I know you've in the past you've done commercials where I think you went skydiving. You took a shower in your suit. Uh, anything in the pipeline for the presidential campaign? Well, we're always thinking of trying to to find innovation, and 
we have a couple of ideas, but, but if I told you, I'd have yeah. to kill you. Yeah, okay, well, don't do that. Uh, and what about the idea of, there's you know, a lot of, I think, lingering anger among women about what happened with Hillary Clinton in 2016. Uh, do you think a woman should be on the ticket with you? <laughs> no, I, absolutely. I think that, I think there is, it's about defeating Donald Trump. I think when I'm out talking to Democrats, if the first thing I hear in Iowa or New Hampshire is in health care, it's defeating Donald Trump. It's, it's probably, it is, it is the first thing I hear more often than anything else is defeating Donald Trump. And I don't think you're going to motivate uh, the country without a, a woman on the ticket, either as president or vice president. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't think you're going to win without that. Yeah. Um, you think a gay person can get elected president? Yeah. I, th- I think right now Americans are going to look at who can beat Trump. And, you know, we each have our different reasons, right, about I'm the, I say I'm the one from outside watching. I'm the one who's actually gotten things done. I put teams together, you know, gotten feuding parties to put down their weapons, progress. We'll see if that sells, right? That's why we have elections. But, you know, I'm, my argument is that in Ohio and Michigan to get those moderate uh, Democrats and the independents to, to really swing away from Trump, we've got to have somebody that can speak to their, their economy and their jobs and and, and shows a continuous record of achievement in those categories, right? When I, when I got elected mayor, we were 40th in job creation. And for the last two years, according to U.S. News and World Report, we're the number one co- economy in America. And we have, I think, we'll have the number one rural economy for 2018. That stuff will sell. Is it going to convince the primary voters that I'm the right guy, even though I'm a, you know, well, I won't say what, how, what they would say in disparaging remarks because... It'd be used against me, but <laughs> I'm not everything that their ideal holds up. Um, do you think that obviously Democrats are going to criticize Trump and people are very polarized about him? But is there anything you think he deserves credit for? You know, the, it is politically reckless to admit that some of the things he's done needed to be doing, but needed to be done. But I think I think he's done things that were that we're going in the right direction, I think the way he's done them has been so, so reckless and, and so irresponsible. The, China. China was cheating on agreements. China stole intellectual property. We had to address. I mean, we just long overdue to address China. But to start a tariff war, especially President Trump promised rural America that he was going to bring jobs back and help raise up their economies. But couldn't you argue it's gotten their attention? Sure, it's gotten their attention. Try, try saying that to a soybean farmer in Iowa, right? They're going to, according to the, to the agriculture auditor there, they're going to need eight consecutive good years as a soybean farmer to get back where they were two years ago. This is, you're going to see the level of bankruptcies next year in, in, in agricultural America. The, the, the debt per, per farm is going steadily up. The revenues is going steadily down. This is a function of, of a farm policy and a tariff war that had... No real benefit. That's not the way you get someone's attention, right? That, that, you can go through history. Tariff wars are the single least successful diplomatic device in the toolbox. Do you think Nancy Pelosi is right to, to hold off on impeachment? Or do you think, I mean, there's some who want to just go for it right now based on what's on the Mueller report. But, yeah, look, I mean, here's the amazing thing. Step back and just look at what is now accepted fact. So the Trump campaign knowingly shared their information to help make Russia more successful in interfering with our election. That's interesting. 
That's, that's a re- and then they lied about it. And, they, and then they tried to cover it up. You know, let's get the full unredacted Mueller report where Congress can see it. That's not going to happen, though. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, well, you watch. I, I think it will happen. Maybe I'm wrong. I think it will happen. And then I think that the, the Congress uh, should compel. Let's hear what, what Mr. Mueller will say under oath. Uh, and the attorney general, let's hear his version. And, you know, let's, let's go through it and, and, and just pull back another layer of the onion skin, of the onion itself, because we're past the skin, uh, and look at what it, I mean, the, the facts, even as we know them, are so appalling. And yet people are fighting over, over, uh, do we impeach or not impeach? My gosh, they knowingly aided a hostile foreign power. But that sounds like an argument for impeachment. Well, you, you can uh, uh, Impeachment is such a vague legal term that getting into those arguments distracts us from what, we'd, what we know happened. I'm going to go back again and again. We might get to impeachment. I'm, you know, I find it... I mean, they gleefully shared their polling data with Russian agents. It is breathtaking. The, the audacity, and then, and then covered it up, lied. What yeah. can I say? I, yeah. I got to take a deep breath. <laughs> need a, you need a little uh, brew. A little. Uh, let's see. So this, we, we've got about nine minutes left here. Um, we haven't talked about immigration, which, of course, is a huge issue. We're a border state here in California. Colorado is not. But uh, obviously you deal with – you have a lot of immigrants there. Um, are Democrats – I mean, it seems like – by wide margins, Americans seem to oppose a wall. They seem to support the dreamers. Um, where things get a little grayer is around things like sanctuary state or sanctuary cities uh, or illegal immigration and what should we do to stop it, uh, paths to citizenship. So where are you on those gray issues? Well, I think this is we're, we're approaching a unique time where we can finally address immigration and, and, and have to, by necessity, address uh, immigration on a, on a holistic way. Uh, last year, I believe in California, I know in, in, in Colorado, was the first time anyone can remember where we did not have manpower to harvest all of our vegetables and fruits. In other words, things that we can't harvest by machine. That's serious. And that's a, right now we have, I mentioned this, we have 7.2 job openings and only 6.3 million people looking for jobs. So right now, talk about you know, trying to deport 10, 11, 12 million people, we don't have enough workers right now. We have to, and again, I believe we need a border. I don't think a wall is a big part of having a secure border, but I do think we need an ID system that works, you know, some form of identification, a driver's license in each state that can't be forged or counterfeited easily. Uh, I believe that we need to have a, you know, a stronger consequences when businesses pay people under the table. That's what Americans care about is fairness. And that but is, how would that address? I mean, they're doing that in part to address those labor shortages, like the, like the, the growers. Again, in let, let me finish. I'll get. So uh, I think if we secure the border, we have an ID system that works. We we make it much more risky, much more damaging for a business to pay people under the table. Then you take the, the 11, 10, 11, 12 million people that are here. You give them all a 10, 10 year visa and then a 10 year extension at their choice. Now, if they create a crime, if they're. You know, uh, felons, we can deport them, but we need them here. Do, do we need more Americans or less Americans? Right now, for our economy, we need more. We should look at how we're choosing who comes into America. We've been, for, 
for a long time, we've had 80% of the immigrants are based on applying and having family members here. Well, that's fine. It's not an awful thing. Maybe we should go more towards 80% of people filling jobs like agricultural needs or tech needs. I mean, all those unfilled jobs, shouldn't immigrants be coming that can help us fill those jobs? And obviously, we still need to, to take care of refugees who are you know, in fear of their lives. I accept that. The one thing we shouldn't allow or ever sanction is our federal paid agents stripping children away from the arms of their parents and then putting them up for adoption. I don't know what everybody else calls it, but that's kidnapping in Colorado, Mm. right? And we've had our country sanctioned kidnapping, in essence. I mean, this is these things all come together at a point now where I think that you go and you take the time and you really create a process by, peop- by which it doesn't get demonized, but people talk about it. And I think you get a pathway to citizenship for those you know, 11 or 12 million people that they have to wait in line. They don't get to butt in front of anybody. But fair is fair. We need them. It's a, it's a question of national urgency. One last quick question. We're almost out of time. Um, what, what, uh, you know, what are you going to do to break out? You're not, you know, you're such a, you're a centrist, you're a pragmatist, you're a Midwest, central of the part of the country governor. You know, you're, you're, you're not like a flamethrower. You know, so how do you, how do you, uh, how do you break out? Uh, Obviously, I've uh, got to convince people that a record of achievement and of bringing people together is exciting and powerful. Not the easiest assignment. I accept that. <laughs> uh, but we do have some pretty creative people. I've got to raise money. Uh, Hickenlooper.com, just to make sure if anybody is, wants to be helpful. We, we love small donations. Uh, I look at it, we've got to say things in a fresh way. And when I was a, a writing student, at, I went to a little college in Connecticut called Wesleyan University. And, yeah, woohoo! Um, and uh, there was a, a teacher there named Paul Horgan. And he, he walked into class one day and he said, Everything has been said, but not everything has been said superbly. And even if it had, everything must be said freshly again and again. And I've got to do a better job of finding fresh ways of describing what we've done in Colorado and how we brought people together. And, you know, I've got a bunch of farmers and ranchers, or most of them Republicans, who want me to run for president. And they want to help me campaign in Michigan and Iowa and Ohio. I mean, that's I, I need to find those kinds of advocates that will we'll stand up. The, we have a thing called the uh, Metro Denver Ministerial Alliance, 35 black pastors and reverends uh, that we worked with. We totally rebuilt our, 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 how we deal with police misconduct back in 2004, 2005, 10 years before Ferguson. And they were our partners. They want to go out and campaign for me and, and say, this is why Hickenlooper is the right person at this moment in time for America. I've got to figure that stuff out, and I've got to raise the money so yeah. that I can get, the, get my voice heard. All right. Well, we heard your voice today. Governor Hickenlooper, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. And we'd like to thank our audience here and on radio, television, and the Internet. I'm Scott Schaefer, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned.